came prepared with my sippy cup this morning. I'm just kidding. My son left it up on the stage. It seems like the world is trying to steal, destroy, take our desires from God to them, or to it, right? Constantly uh, going after us in every way it can. Singing songs like we just sang, give us clean hands, give us clean hearts. Let us not, let us not, what? What's it say? Lift our souls to another. Doesn't it seem like the world is trying to get us to lift our souls to something other than him? It's a constant battle. I hope and pray that you're here on purpose this morning to... Learn how to get better. Learn how to change. Learn how to, to lift your soul to the one that really is going to make a difference. And uh, it's going to do something with your soul for all eternity that uh, is a good thing. We went out shooting the other day. And um, Braden's not here, so he's going to miss out on our, my story this morning. Um, we went out shooting the other day. Terry went with us, and we took a bunch, bunch of the kids. All, all of our, our family went, and... And uh, Braden and his kids were out there also, and and uh, we had long guns, we had short guns, and we had all different kinds of guns. And we had uh, Braden had a target set. It was about a oh, probably four foot by about six foot target set up, and he had two paper targets stuck to it. And um, we started out shooting the long gun. We were way down range, about a hundred yards down range, and um, so everybody walked down the stream or walked down the creek bed. And um, so we started shooting and shot off a couple rounds to sight in our, our, our deer gun. And Colton took a shot and then uh, we went down there a little closer. We started shooting the short guns and, and then uh, Braden got out his, I, I think it's an AR-10. Did he tell you what that gun was? 556, that's a caliber, right? Yeah. Okay, so anyway, so it's, it's a really neat looking gun and he's carrying it on a, on his, uh, a, whole, on a shoulder strap. I don't even know what that's called. Not in all those terms, but anyway, he's got it on the shoulder strap, and he, he pulls it up, and it was starting to get dark, and so we had shot a bunch, shot a bunch of handguns and a bunch of um, 22s, and at closer range, probably from here to the wall, and um, and then he steps about halfway closer, Terry and him start unloading a couple of handguns, and then he pulls up this, I think it's an AR-15 or AR-10 or what, 556 is the caliber, and he turns on his little green light, and he points it right in the middle of the target, and he. Unloads that thing. It was like 20 shots, and it was super loud and sounded really neat, and um, it was awesome. But then when we looked at the target, the targets, like I said, there was two paper targets. They were about like this, about like that. And there was a center spot, and then there was four little targets on either side of it, and there was two of those, right? So the centers of each of those it was about this big around the centers. This. You could see through and see the dirt hill behind it. There was nothing left of this target, right? And all of the holes were right in the center of the target. Well, there's this great big four-foot by six-foot target that we could have shot up, but we didn't. We shot for right in the center of those targets. Why do you think that is? Well, duh. It's a target. You're supposed to aim for the center, right? Yeah, that's right. But you know, I think there are times 
in my spiritual life that I have observed in my own ways of thinking that I'm not really aiming for the bullseye. When Colton brought up his 22, he didn't aim for the edge of the target. He aimed for the center of the target. If you were a shooting instructor and you had a young person and you had a student there and you were, you were training them to shoot and they were shooting the edge of the target, what would you say? You're never going to hit the bullseye if you shoot at the edge of the target, right? You shoot at the center of the target. Center mass is what you're trying to aim for. There are many individuals who are aiming for the edge. And they're so surprised when their life doesn't feel like it's hitting the bullseye. We can't figure out why we're not feeling blessed by God. And we can't, we can't figure out why God feels so, so far away. We struggle to be with God. It's hard to view him as our friend. It's often hard to feel close to anyone around us for that matter. It's even hard to make friends at times. I believe it's because we aren't aiming for the bullseye. We're apathetic when it comes to our relationship with God. Sometimes there are congregation and religions who are also aiming for the edge of the target. Compromise and tolerance has become a main paradigm in many churches. Like I said last week, I don't want the church here. I don't want each and every one of you as individuals to ever aim for the edge of the target. We want to point ourselves at the bullseye. We want to collect as much information as we possibly can from God's word, from the blueprints, and apply it to our lives so that we can hit the bullseye. I want us to be a church that aims for the center of the target. When we look at the bullseye and the blueprints of the church, we're going to be able to visualize what the church will look like. Before we do that, let's look to God in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to be together today. And I thank you so much for the songs that we were able to sing. God, the, 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 the moments that we were able to share with each other and you in communion and, and thinking about what you did for us on the cross. God, I pray that as we dive into these words this morning, that you will bless us and you will give us a, a strength to listen and apply it to our hearts and minds. I pray that you'll give us that strength this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always the same kind of crowds that show up. And even in the early days, it's much like today. People like to sit in their certain areas and they like their certain chairs and they like their certain pews and they like their certain stumps that they like to sit on. We're kind of creatures of habit. Most churches, and especially, especially this particular one, being small like it was, they had this sort of same routine. Everyone would come in and find their usual spot, and they would share a few shallow words with, the, with those around them, and then they would anticipate the start. This morning, Sister Agnes and, and Edna would sing. Everybody knows that it's from their heart that they listen, because from their ears, the noise isn't the most pleasant. The piano is a beat or two behind the voice, but they're used to this sound. And after they're done singing and after the service, of course, there would be some that would come up and 
give them praise for the, what they have done. The congregation would sit in anticipation. They knew what was coming next. A, a few community songs would be sung. And, and then the Lord's Supper and the message from God's Word. The morning is interrupted by a dark figure that enters by himself. His hired men are not with him. He comes in quietly and he sits down in the second row from the back. The whispers and heads begin to turn and see who just came in. They all know who it is. The news reports and heralds had let everyone know what was going on. This man was the head of organized crime. He was even terroristic in nature, moving from one region to the next, uh, even inside and outside of, of certain countries. Killing was his specialty. Leaving behind terror and fear was second nature. Many had been given to their maker at his own hands. Others left but bloody and bruised, begging for their lives. His legacy left was unlike any other. He hadn't been seen for almost three years. He thought the scene would, would be more calm after some time away. But even now, the stairs were, were cold and they were harsh. As the first song is led, some join in, but most just stare at the floor. With few and even times no one singing, the song leader finishes far short of his normal four or five songs. No one wants to sing, and so leading a song is nearly impossible. The man asked to talk about the Lord's death cuts his exhortation short to a few words and a mumbled prayer. Some partake of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, but most just stay put. A few even get up and sneak out the side doors. As the preacher gets up and brings his message and begins to share from God's word, he realizes what's happening. In this situation, no one would want to share a message because no one is listening. He stops short with a few verses and even mumbles out a quick closing prayer, followed by a quick escape out the side door. Everyone gets up in a mass exodus and everyone looks for the closest door. The man in the back stands and looks for someone to talk to. He gets ignored. The questions about whether or not there will be other meetings and other Bible stories read go unanswered due to the cold nods and shrugs that he receives. He exits similar to how he entered alone. He knew it would be a hard road. He knows he deserves this type of treatment. His life and the career that his life that is that, that his path took was was a direction that was not socially acceptable. Changing his ways and his name wasn't enough for most people. And what's amazing is that we get to sit here this morning and read a letter written by this man about how to do church. Isn't that ironic? How a man named Saul changed to Paul wrote many of our New Testament books. So many times in religious circles we hear the terms apostle and saint and evangelist, amazing Christian. But in almost every one of Paul's letters, he tries to remind us about the man that he was. How God changed him from one extreme to another. This letter is no different. He first warns, like we heard last week, that this religion stuff and all this crazy bogus Bible teaching can really mess us up. Then before he gets into the meat, 
of what he needs to tell Timothy, he shares a few words about himself. I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in, in uh, about, about verse 12. Go with me there. It's not going to be on the screen. Well, they, they, they could, the, the quotation will. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want to start reading in verse 12. We'll see parts of this as we, as we go through the rest of the sermon, but I want you to find it in your Bible and read along with me. I'm reading from the NLT if you have, an, if you have a choice. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 1. Picture in your mind this mobster, this killer of Christians, this outcast from nearly all first century churches at, at, to begin with, sitting down writing to his good friend Timothy. Read with me verse 12. Says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, in my insolence I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did not, I did it rather in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 14. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with faith and love that come from Jesus Christ. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Well, it's funny that, that Paul's trying to end the, the book before he even really begins. Well, but after what's been said just now, he feels like he has to, you know what, he has to close this down and say, okay, okay, now I'm going to move on to something else. This is laying out the blueprints. This is sort of measure twice, cut once kind of a deal. Before Paul gets into the details about leadership, about our, our worship time, about how we are to, to interact with others, he begins with, don't forget who I was. We can't get too busy doing church and forget why we do it. It's because of God's grace. It's because of God's mercy. That's why we do it. That's why we're here. That's why any of us are here. Because of his grace and mercy. Well, mercy and grace, grace and mercy, they, they work hand in hand. And what's the difference? I don't know about you, but I always get them confused. And it, I try to pinpoint exactly what they mean and what they look like. And I just have a, sometimes I have a hard time. Let me give you the definition and I'll explain it. I'll explain it so I can understand it. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? What do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath, right? We've all sinned and we've all fallen far short of what it is that God wants out of us. 
Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And, and that is God's love through, through Christ. Let me explain it to you so I can understand Matt's not here this morning. He's probably out pulling people over. Or maybe he was up all night pulling people over and he just needs to sleep right now. Matt's a state patrol officer and I've ridden with Matt several times, or a couple of times, and it's been absolutely incredible and it's been a fun time. But Matt is out there on I-25. I know where he patrols. I know where he's at. And so when I get on the freeway and I tap the gas and I'm at 95 miles an hour and his car comes up behind me and pulls me over. 95 is a little bit past the threshold. Matt says there is a threshold. There's, you know, 75 is the limit, but it's really not the limit. He, you know, you can do a little bit more than 90, than 75. <laughs> But doing 95, 97, 98, whatever, that's a little past. And he'd pull me over. When Matt comes up to the car, he would notice that it's me. And he would say, you deserve a ticket. You were going 98 miles an hour in a 75 mile an hour zone. You deserve a ticket. But because I have mercy. I will not give you that ticket. Okay? That's, that's God's mercy, right? That's, that's Matt's mercy. He's, he's feeling sorry for me. And he's you know, feeling like, oh, you know, maybe this time I should dish out some mercy. Now, I can't promise you that he will do that. And I guarantee he won't do it with me because I know better. But he might do it to some of, with some of you. Now, if, if he finished his statement with... You, you deserve a ticket, but I'm not going to give you one this time. I'm just going to write you a warning. And then he reaches in his personal wallet, and he pulls out a $100 bill, and he hands it to me. That is grace. That's something that I don't deserve that I got, right, that he handed me. It'd be difficult to take. I don't know that I even would. But that's grace. You see the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is something that you deserve that you don't get. Grace is something that you get that you don't deserve. Now, let's dive in. God's grace is given freely, but you have to accept it. Some people have a hard time accepting it. Some people have a hard time, uh, like, like the $100 bill handed to me from Matt. I would have a hard time accepting that. I don't deserve that. I'm not worthy of that. I, I, I just messed up, Matt. I don't deserve that. With God, it's the same way. Real grace frees us from our guilt and our shame. Look at 1 Timothy, that, that chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, I thank, God, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who gave me strength because he trusted me and gave me this work of serving him. In the past, I spoke against Christ and persecuted him and did all kinds of things to hurt him. But God showed me mercy because I did not know what I was doing. I did not believe. God's mercy and grace frees us from our guilt and shame. 1 John 1 and verse, verse 9, it says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all wickedness. We get cleansed from that. It's it's removed from our, our record. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, So now those who are in Christ Jesus are not judged guilty. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit that brings life made you free from the law that brings sin and death. We're not judged guilty because of who we are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 it says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. This is the real beauty of the Christian life. The freedom from all that garbage that we got ourselves into. The sin, the guilt, the selfishness, it can all be gone. Grace is something we have to accept. It's given freely, but we have to accept it. We have to take it on. We don't deserve it, but we have to. It's given anyway. We have to take it. God's grace is not about who we are. It's not about what we did. It's about what we want to become. Look at verse 13 in that 1 Timothy passage. In the past, I spoke against Christ and, and persecuted him and did all kinds of things to hurt him. But God showed me mercy because I did not know what I was doing. I did not believe. But the grace of our Lord was fully given to me. And with that grace came the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. What I say is true and you should fully accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But I was given mercy so that in me, the worst of all sinners, Christ Jesus could show that he has patience without limit. His patience with me made me an example for those who would believe in him and have life forever. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you did. It matters about what you want and who you want to become. That's what matters the most. The Lord's not slow in doing what he promised. Second Peter tells us that God is patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants all to change our hearts and lives and become more like him. You ever feel weighted down by the burden of guilt, sin, the shame of the things you've done? Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me all who are tired and have heavy loads, and I will give you rest. I think God wants us to reach out to everyone. God doesn't care who they are or what they've done. God cares about who they want to become. Listen closely. We think it's really great that God wants to reach out to all kinds. The rough and the rich. The poor and the proud. We read stories about how God wants to save all sinners. We love to hear about, you know, the, the prostitutes and the pornographers that, that get saved and become Christians. The sex slaves and the sexual molesters being ripped from Satan's grasp to become one of his. We celebrate those times, right? But we just don't want them in our church. What? What, what did you say? I just said what you're thinking. So don't hold me accountable. Don't we feel that way sometimes? Don't we think that way sometimes? We think, you know what? I love it that God's 
bringing in these, these people, but man, I don't want to sit by him. Greg read some things out of James on Wednesday night about who comes in our doors and who sits with us. I wonder if a guy like Paul walked in, a leader of organized crime, a dark figure, a, a well-known criminal, how we would treat him. We like the idea of God saving the down and out as long as we don't have to deal with their garbage. I think we need to rethink some things a bit. God doesn't care who they are or what they've done. God cares what they want to be, what they want to become. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, or 1 Corinthians 6, yeah, verse 9 uh, through 11 says, Don't you realize that those who do all wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexualities or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive and cheap people, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's right. Preach it, preacher. That's right. Except look at the next words. Some of you were once like that. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I remember. I used to be that sinner. That one that didn't deserve mercy. And that definitely does not deserve grace. We were cleansed. We were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our Lord. We were once like that. A little bit farther down, or actually farther back, uh, up in the passage a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting in verse 30 it says God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit God made him to be wisdom itself Christ made us right with God he made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin therefore as scriptures say if you want to boast boast about the Lord many of us have accepted that grace you can too you aren't too good or too bad You aren't too rich or too poor. You aren't too proud or too dirty with sin. His death on the cross can cover your sin. There's enough blood in the sacrifice for you. When Jesus died on the cross for for our sin, that's God's mercy. When he took the pain of your guilt on himself at the cross, that's God's mercy. He paved the way for you to live a life of freedom from your sin. That's God's grace. He allows you to know for sure that your sin is covered once again. That's God's grace. When you hear about what God's love did for you on the cross, when you believe his blood was shed for you so you could be freed from sin, when you repent of all sin and turn from those sins, known and unknown, when you confess his name as Lord of your life, When you contact the blood of Christ by allowing yourself to be buried with him in a watery grave of baptism, your sins can be washed away. The Holy Spirit can come and reside within your heart and life. It's not about who you are, who you were, what you did. It's about who you want to become, a follower of Jesus Christ. God's grace is a big deal. It's given freely, but we have to accept it. We have to take it on. We have to understand it. 
It's given freely and it frees us from our guilt and shame. It's not about who we were. It's not about what we did. It's about what we want to become. So what should we do about it? That's it. That's mercy and grace. So what should we do about it? We have to live it. In order to live it, we have to live God's grace. It means we're no longer in charge. Like confession, when a person is made a follower of Christ, it means that I am no longer in charge. It's no longer, I'm no longer the master. It's he that is the master. Jesus Christ is the master. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 says, Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. We were bought and paid for. We are to honor God with every breath, with every ounce of strength, with every bit of our energy. There's a teaching out there that says because of God's grace and mercy, it it really doesn't matter how I should live. Once you've got heaven, you can live like, you know what else? No. Our salvation, our life given back to us is free, but it was not cheap. We have an obligation to live like God wants us to live. Romans 14 and verse 8, it says, If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Our life is not ours to decide what to do with it. He's now in control. Suffer or feel good. Pain or pleasure. It's His to decide. There's going to be times of all those. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lloyd's not here anymore. He's gone. It's Christ in me now. And that's the way it is, should be with each and every one of us. It's no longer you, but it's Christ in you. Living God's grace means we're no longer in charge. Secondly, living God's grace means loving those Jesus loved. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Well, that sounds simple enough. Well, not so much. Jesus Christ loved us an awful lot. He did a great deal of good for us. We need to share that love with others. He hung out with some of the worst people there were. Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus hanging out with some tax collectors and disreputable sinners, it says. The Pharisees were grumbling and complaining. Why does this, why does this guy eat with this such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Is there someone in your life that needs mercy? Is there someone in your life that deserves punishment? Because you haven't been given what you deserve, maybe you shouldn't dish out the punishment. Is there someone in your life that doesn't deserve your love? They lost that right a long time ago. Grace is love undeserved. Even when they don't deserve it, we love on them anyway. 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not 
love does not know God. For God is love. 1 John 4, a little bit farther down, it says we love each other because he first loved us. Well, someone says, well, I love God but hates his fellow believer. That person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can't, who we can't see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? He's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Living God's grace means we love those who Jesus loved. Thirdly, we, means, we, we faithful, uh, means that, that faithfulness precedes usefulness. Uh, my ability to be useful to God only happens when I am faithful with the little things that God gives me. Look at 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12. It says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve. We have to understand that it's, that it's by grace and mercy that we have become his then it has little to do with our talents, our Bible knowledge. It's, it's not about how we can memorize Scripture and how outgoing we are about our faith. He doesn't consider me useful until I'm faithful. Ouch, that's a tough statement. That's a hard one. But think about the greats. Think about David. Think about Daniel. Think about the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had moments... When they had to be faithful in the small things. Saul brought David in and he said, Can you think you can really, you can really take on this giant? Why did, what did David say? Yeah, I can. I was faithful. I, I killed the lion and the bear. I was out there tending sheep for many, many years. God used him because he was faithful with the mundane you want to be useful to God? Do the boring old job that you know you should do. God will use you. Be the dad. Spend the time with your kids. Love your wife. Go to work every day to provide for them. Be the mom. Love your kids selflessly. Love and honor your husband. Do the dishes. Wash the clothes. God will consider you useful because you are faithful. 1 Samuel 15. Samuel was talking to Saul who was on the end of his, his rule, Samuel replies, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering a fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness is bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you. As king. Saul has a rebellious streak. He was being stubborn. God asked for obedience and submission. Living God's grace means faithfulness precedes usefulness. And lastly, it means that we need to live a life of thankfulness and worship. First Timothy 1.17 says, All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. It all belongs to him. Take responsibility and give credit, especially when it's God we're talking about. Colossians chapter 3, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be what? Thankful. 
We're to be always thankful. Let the message of, of Christ and, and all of its riches fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with a wisdom he gives. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful in all circumstances. This is God's will for you. If we're going to live God's grace, we need to be thankful. We need to be worshipful. We need to be praising God all the time. Grace and mercy is the big deal because of what we were and what we can become. Grace and mercy is a big deal because it's the foundation of all that is church. It's the, it's the, the bedrock that the church can be built on. It's what we can build on. Because of what God did for us, we can use that grace and mercy to, to show others that same grace and mercy. We can aim for the bullseye of what God wants us to be as a church and as individuals if we focus on God's grace and God's mercy. I hope there's been some things that we've been able to share this morning um, from God's word that can bless your life. You know, it's, it's aiming for the bullseye is seems like common 